HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. We'll learn the construction of a meal in medieval Syria today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And so often on this show, we talk about what cookbooks tell us, whether they're old manuscripts, vintage community books, or contemporary cookbooks, be they American, Italian, or or Persian. And there's a new book out that tells us quite a bit, not just what Recipe, what recipes they are, what ingredients to buy, but it really does give us a window into the social history of the medieval period in Syria. The book is called Scents and Flavors, a Syrian cookbook by Charles Perry, and it is a translation, I might add, a translation and edited by Charles Perry. It's a 13th century cookbook, very special. And even though it does give us a glimpse into this period and what it would be like to sit down to a dinner, it all seems very current. The recipes seem current. The flavors seem, yes, exotic, but something that is very current in today's culinary world as we're exploring the recipes and foods of different countries. And it is also very timely because it's important to preserve the history of this torn country. Charles Perry is a culinary historian who's written widely on cooking in the medieval, in the medieval Middle East. I'll say that three times, the medieval Middle East. He's published and consulted widely on Middle Eastern food history and has translated a number of pre-modern texts, including a Baghdad cookery book, The Book of Dishes, which has been translated into Turkish. Welcome, Charles. Hello. Um, this, is, this book is... I feel very special because in reading it, it, it was uncanny how current some of those recipes did appear to be. And yet um, it comes from a period of the 13th century. And it, it tells these about this inventive cuisine that with the aromas of uh, herbs and spices and fruit and, and flower essences, that's a whole other chapter, all the essences. Um, 
tell us a little bit about this book and what what actually we know about it. Well, I think, uh, first, I think one of the reasons it seems contemporary is that the author has a kind of a um, little bit of a chummy style. He's got little bits of advice. He says, be sure to do this, be sure not to do that. He's uh, clearly very knowledgeable about the food, and he claims to have tested all the recipes. I'm not sure, <laughs> because medieval cook, uh, cookbook uh, writers often say that. Uh, this book was compiled in the middle of the 13th century by um, a member of the aristocracy of the Ayyubid dynasty. He's one of the grandsons of Saladin. We don't know which grandson. He had a lot of grandsons. And different manuscripts ascribe it to different guys. So we don't really know. But it represents the cooking of the upper crust of uh, inland Syria. Uh, so there are hardly any fish dishes. Hmm. The only, only fish dishes are dried fish. And they even have an imitation dried fish dish. I think fish must have been pretty rare in the interior. Uh-huh. Interesting. And uh, it, uh, it, it reflects the banquet cuisine of the time. These are not everyday dishes. And um, it, uh, it tells you how to organize a banquet from the beginning to the end, basically. Well, I was impressed by, by that. Um, and, of course, so many of the cookbooks from you know, the... the um, ancient period are uh, meals of the aristocracy. I mean, who even even Renaissance and uh, you know England. I mean, we don't know what the common person ate as much as, of course, we know about banquets. Well, people in the lower classes wouldn't have written books, right? And they wouldn't have had cooks to follow books. Um, and and even middle class people, basically, they wanted to hear about the fancy dishes. Yeah. They didn't, you know, they didn't need recipes for dishes. They already knew how to cook. Well, now, and how how certain are we um, that it is a, really can be attributed to one author? I know the author is anonymous, as you said, but a member of that tribe. Um, so often these books, as you said, the, you know, scribes would be writing these and passing them down. How often were things added, or you know, whose recipes were they? That. That's tough. And you also have to remember that the traditional way of writing a cookbook is what we would call plagiarism. <laughs> right. <laughs> Go into that a little bit in that period as well. Uh, throughout history. <laughs> uh, the, the fact is that uh, a recipe, if it has a name, means it's a current recipe. And in effect, it's the common property of its time and place. And all cooks cook it. or They have their own little touches and variations on it. Hmm. You know, up until this time, there really weren't a lot of cookbooks. And we know that the through history there were the cuneiform tablets, and and we have Apicius um, from the you know, Roman antiquity. And even there, we're not sure who wrote that, and who you know, that's still a big question mark in many uh, through many schools. Um, but what I was impressed with this, you said he, the author had a chummy manner about him, and, and indeed, yet in so many of these older recipes, older volumes, they don't, they really expect the person reading it to know a lot about cooking and pretty much what, you know, what to do in the kitchen. This one is a little bit more specific, which I liked. Yeah, I think uh, he, he wants people to get it right. Hmm, get it right, that's, that's true. Um, for you in translate, I mean, now, tell, tell me about this, I mean, translating, first of all, I just want to tell our listeners that the book is written very much um, like some fun <laughs> fun and uh, uh, books I'm thinking of uh, Dante's uh, writings where they're they have the translation on one page and the original script on the other on the facing page which I think makes it fun and interesting to read I wish that I could read Arabic um, but the your translation really keeps it in about the same the same amount of, of prose and words as the original script. Um, you just basically did a word for word. I mean, I know that you have studied and, and, and done other books in Arabic. How, what was the challenge here? Well, you can't really translate it word for word because of the difference of the languages. And in some cases, um, <clears throat> the a literal translation would not indicate everything that a contemporary reader would have known. So it's not exactly literal, but the the sense is exact mm -hmm. of the Arabic. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, like one word or phrase would be more descriptive of a lot, a lot more than just a word, like cook. 
And also you have to remember that um, everything was copied by hand, and hand copying is just rife with opportunities for making mistakes, yeah. and particularly for dropping words. And so um, in some cases we just have to supply a word. I mean, it's perfectly obvious if we see a similar recipe in another book that, you know, that there was no question that such a word was, should be supplied here. And there's one, <laughs> there's one recipe that says to boil syrup and then throw in a mixture, a, a sort of a cornstarch slurry, and it says don't stir it. If you don't stir it, you just get a mess. <laughs> right. Um, uh, I am convinced, and I pretty much convinced my editors at New York University Press that um, the, somebody had left out the word cease from. So don't cease from stirring. Uh-huh. That's what was really meant. Because I tried actually about 15 times doing this without stirring. It's stuck and to the bottom of the pan, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a mess. Yeah. Um, but I, it's, and I failed to mention, yes, and thank you for, for mentioning that, that this book is part of the Library of Arabic Literature from New York University Press. Um, and I, and it's, it's quite a nice, I think quite a nice, it's, it's a really nice volume. And the table of contents was quite a work in itself. I mean, there are, you know, there are different sections on chicken dishes, sec, you know, type or 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 a turnip dish type number one, type number two, <laughs> type number three. I mean, it's quite a detailed table of contents, which is wonderful. Uh, and the rest, every it's organized according to uh, the 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 fluid of motion of a meal, and you know, appetite bakes you through appetizers and main courses and uh, and and perfume. Well, perfume is a, a very special chapter, and I do want to talk about that. Um, and before we get into the perfumes, I wanted to ask you what what were some of your what was the process that you what is the process that you go through when because you've done this before, but in in choosing a book and then translating it, um, in translating the the cooking directions and 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 the methods. Um, and your process of research in I mean there's so many things to to learn and to research tell us a little well, bit first about place, that I, I got as many manuscripts as I could um, I based this on six manuscripts and I have several more <clears throat> um, one of them is extremely aberrant I think it was not being copied uh, well the scribe was not copying from a manuscript somebody was reading the, manus- the recipes out to him and he was writing it down as fast as he could. Hmm. And then you just compare the, 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 the various versions and uh, see whether you can establish the text. And uh, then after that, it really depends on what you know about medieval cooking and what you know about cooking in general. I mean, there are things that... Um, one of the things about, about these ancient recipes is a lot of them really need to be tested before you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a dish called sick badge, which, um, if you read the recipes, it's basically lamb cooked with apparently whatever vegetables and fruits you want, um, and whatever spices, as long as there's vinegar and saffron in it. And it uh, calls for a lot of vinegar, and it's pretty repellent to eat. And I w- couldn't figure out why it was so popular until one time I made a recipe and then I let it get cold, and it turned into a jelly. It was basically lamb in aspic. Huh. And it had that magical texture of jelly, which was uh, which uh, mesmerized the world until we got cheap gelatin. Right. Uh, it was uh, it was a very aristocratic thing. And uh, so, in fact, a couple of years after I realized this, I came across a book by an Italian scholar named Anna Martellotti, uh, who speculated the word aspic actually comes from the name of this dish. Wow. So this is a this is a well this was a well known manuscript um, at the time. Uh, this was a, real, a well-known recipe. It was the favorite recipe ah. of the of the, uh, the the rulers of pre-Islamic Persia. Well, th- so many of the um, the ingredients used, and the and then the overall. Uh, I'm going to say, I, I, you know, reading the recipe, I can get a, I think that I can get a smell or a taste of it, you know, in in working with it and cooking it, and and very much similar to so many of the. Um, rash of Persian recipes that are that are um, surfacing these days. A lot of cookbooks, uh, use of so many herbs, so many um, spices, and and 
floral scents, and you talk about that in the rose waters and all. It's, and fruits. And fruits, exactly, and a lot of fruits. Um, do you how how much do you think the cooking of Syria has changed? Are many of these recipes still in in use um, in contemporary books? Well, the thing you have to remember is that these were fashionable dishes, and fashionable dishes eventually become unfashionable. Um, there are some dishes that are still made. There's sambusik, which is the the Syrian version of uh, samosa. Uh, they still make um, <clears throat> zalabia. Uh, there's that sort of like uh, it's kind of like funnel cake, uh, medieval pastry. Mm. Um, they make the pilaf was already being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, though, bulgur wheat was not. Hmm. Bulgur wheat. I mean, I don't. Uh, you would think the idea of boiling wheat so that the starch was converted and to, it was gelatinized. And then drying it out and then crushing it up was such a convenient thing that it would be ancient, but it isn't. Uh, the earliest appearance of the word bulgur that I have found is in a 16th century Persian cookbook where it only, it's just an adjective meaning crushed. Right. Oh, interesting. So probably bulgur was invented in the 17th century or maybe 18th. Huh. I'm, I'm but, um, madly writing well, that down as you talk. But <laughs> yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that you, that you miss in, uh, from going from uh, medieval to modern Persian cooking is the use of fruit juices. It's much less common now. And one reason is the introduction of the tomato. Right. Tomato right. juice substitutes for a lot of those medieval fruit juices, you know, particularly in the kinds of stews called yachni. Uh, Americans think it's sort of like a failed uh, marinara sauce, but actually it's not supposed to be a rich sauce. It's just supposed to be, the tomato's supposed to add just a little bit of sourness to play off against the meat. Mm-hmm. And, well, Other than that, the things that survive tend to be like um, pastries like zalabia and, uh, uh, and sweets, like um, the, 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 the kadi's mouthful, locomo kadi. Hmm. Uh, but but other, otherwise, you know, uh, food history moves on. New, new dishes get invented, and in particular... Um, when the Turks conquered all, basically all the Arab world except for Morocco and the remoter parts of Arabia, um, they started a new cuisine of their own in Istanbul, and that's the cuisine of dolmas and baklava and mm-hmm. shish kebab. Mm-hmm. And that uh, obviously was bound to have a lot of effect on the local cuisine. Yeah, interesting. Um, the, the use of, um, of some of these ingredients... Uh, even some of the the more esoteric ones I see are still I see them appear in um, in some Middle Eastern recipes today. Except um, then there are others like ambergris, some we don't see as often for some various from some obvious reasons. And what were the the challenges in that and some of the ingredients in trying to to test and reproduce the recipes? Well, thank God for the internet. Huh. You can find just about anything. Um, I, there were some ingredients I'd never heard of because they're perfume ingredients, and I've, I was in a student of food. But you can get them. You can't get um, uh, actual ambergris or musk these days because, uh, you know, the, the, the musk deer is, uh, is endangered, and uh, ambergris it only comes from whales. So, but they have pretty good imitations that you can get. Hmm. And they use them in perfumes, and they also put them in some dishes. Yeah, that, I was I was uh, intrigued by that. I have to say, and which does lead us on to the perfumes section. Um, but in in the cooking, there is um, something that is part of the perfume section too, and that's the um, smoking of scents and and smoking them and adding them to the dish. Now, I was trying to follow this in one of the recipes, and. And I must say, I got a little bit lost as to actually how I would be doing it, because um, I did not sample the recipe in, in actuality. But talk about those smoked scents and smoked scent flavors. Well, uh, you would uh, take, uh, uh, typically, uh, for cooking purposes, you would use either um, um, sandalwood or uh, spice, uh, and in a sense, very much like sandalwood, called agarwood. It's more expensive, so this cookbook calls for it more. And then you would put the food on top of it as it smoked. The same process that you use if you were going to perfume your clothes with uh, uh, some kind of incense. 
And this process is not entirely unknown in the Middle East today. There is a particular kind of a pudding that is still made in Lebanon and Syria where people will sometimes put the, the bowl over some sandalwood before filling it. Mm-hmm. They got a subtle um, incense smell in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Well, there actually is a um, a French chef here in New York that does that, um, and I forget what the scent is that he smokes. It's a dessert, um, and um, I will I will think of that and I won't post it. But yes, so that's what it reminded me of: that putting the bowl over it and, and capturing that smoke, and then it flavors the bowl. So that's very interesting, which leads us right into that chapter on perfumes and scents. Okay, now for a lot of people, this is going to be, you know, would be strange to know that there's a chapter on perfumes and scents in a cookbook. But tell us about that. Well, in a medieval banquet, um, the food was very highly uh, aromatic, and the diners were supposed to make their own contribution to the sensory overload. (laughs) They were supposed to perfume themselves, and there were specific perfumes for the hands, the face, the hair, and the clothes. And, of course, you would have first, you would have gone to uh, the steam bath and then had a rub down. And then um, that was the first stage of the meal. These were, uh, of the cookbook, these are the things you were supposed to put on yourself before you went to the meal. And then there were were later stages when you you had an aromatic soap to wash your hands with. And then after the meal, you had had cleaning powders that were aromatic. Then there's a final chapter on... Distilling um, mostly flower waters and uh, other exotic scents to splash on yourself at the end of the meal. Hmm. Um, you and and have you have you tried a lot of these perfumes? Have you tried making the scents? I've tried some of them. Um, one of them is very handsome smell. I, I should point out that um, in our culture, we don't think that men wear perfume. Of course, they do wear cologne and uh, mm-hmm. splashes and things like that, and. The difference between men's and women's perfumes was a little bit like ours today. Men's perfumes tended to be more uh, musky and earthy, and women's tended to be more floral and exotic. And uh, the typical man's hand perfume was called Ralia, which literally means expensive. It was made from uh, Moringa oil, also called Den oil, which... um, you can get it on the on the internet because it's supposed to be good for your skin, but they usually remove the scent, which is very attractive. It's to hmm. me, it's like a combination of peanut butter and celery, and then you would add ambergris and musk to this and put this on your hands, and it is a very nice smell. Hmm. And you know, it's it it certainly is understandable with all the spices um, and highly aromatic um, herbs used in the cooking and the dishes, and if you get that on your hands, I guess rather than walking around smelling garlic all the time on your fingers, I mean, yeah, you, so you perfume your hands afterwards. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and also you, you wash your hands because the hands, your hands have been in the food. Right. And uh, they were very, very adamant about this. There's a whole Arabian Nights story about a guy whose life has turned into a living hell because he didn't wash his hands after eating <laughs> a particular dish and his... Uh, his bride, who grew up in the palace, um, ordered, you know, says, off with his head, basically. Wow. She eventually says, just off with his thumbs. I guess people better watch out if I invite them for a medieval Syrian dinner. They're going to have a lot to do before they come. They have to, you know, bathe and perfume. Um, there, But there is so much to talk about, and actually um, the cooking of the dishes. And we're going to talk more about that as soon as we come back from a short break. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, 
but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Charles Perry. Charles the, is the translator and editor of um, a new book called Sense and Flavors, a Syrian cookbook, originally a 13th century cookbook. And, Charles, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, there is a, an, an interest in preserving the cuisine of Syria um, today. Um, and, and I asked you before if any of these recipes seemed... <clears throat> to be those similar to to what is is still being cooked um, but as far as an overall impression of the recipes in this book, is there one is there a, a particular way that you would describe the food and over an sort of overarching description of many of the of the recipes were they similar in many ways well there's a basic similarity in that the same ingredients are still being used. And so that will always give a family resemblance. Mm -hmm. I would say that in the, the medieval cuisine, there was much more uh, emphasis on stews, stews with very complex flavorings with nuts and herbs and spices and sometimes fruit essences and, as we've said, uh, incense. And in the, in the Middle East today, there, um, it, it's, there's not that, that sort of monomania uh, for uh, stews. Hmm. And also, they've not really have the concept of the soup. I mean, they're, they're, well, they have some things a little bit like soup, but they're more soups, for instance, in the Middle, in the Middle East today. Yeah, I've noticed in, um, in reading some of the older recipes from Middle Eastern and Persian areas that soups and stews are almost interchangeable in terminology. Um, did you find that at all in, the, in these recipes? Yeah, it can be. Some recipes say that you can add more water if you want it. Uh, but, uh, of course, since you, people were eating with their hands, they preferred to have the stews rather thick so you could pick uh, the food up. You mm -hmm. did not want to stick a spoon into the soup, into the stew, and then put it in your mouth, and then put it back. I mean, it would be a double-dip thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but this book actually does describe a kind of um, soup spoon that's used for some dishes. And it, uh, people would have had to use it uh, rather carefully because everybody was eating out of the common bowl. Hmm. Well, it's in the, um, you know, the hand washing and the perfumes. Even you had uh, said in some one article or interview that the um, the deodorants and the washing powders was um, a big part of the cookbook's initial appeal, and in fact, um, may have been the reason that it became such a bestseller. Do you do you? And, that, and what gives you that idea or impression? Well, this book goes into much more detail about perfumes than any of the other books. And it was the best-selling cookbook of the Middle Ages. Um, there are more manuscripts of this book than of all the other medieval Arab cookbooks put together. Hmm. And, of course, another reason was, as you mentioned, it's very systematic. It, yeah, it's amazingly so, I mean, for such an old book. Um, you know, usually they skip around and just have, you know, uh, dishes that contain an egg, dishes that, you know, contain, you know, something else. But this really is you know, very orderly in, in, in terms of modern-day cookbooks. 
Yes, it shows that the guy was working harder when he was plagiarizing, whenever he was plagiarizing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have actually done, you, I know obviously you tested a lot of these recipes and I'm sure farmed them out to other, others to test them, but you recently gave a cooking demo in Abu Dhabi at, a, at the International Book Fair there, and you cooked dishes from this book, correct? Yes, and of course, quite shattered with jet lag. I mean, it's eleven hours time zone. <laughs> yeah, right. What did you tell us? What What did you cook and and describe the dishes for us? Well, I think the big hit was a dish called uh, uh, Karni Yaruk. Um, it's sort of like a deconstructed baklava. Baklava was not invented till a couple hundred years later, but it was um, basically you roll out of you make a noodle paste with a little bit of butter in it. You roll it out paper thin. Brush it with butter, fold it over, cut it into uh, uh, strips that are sort of like folded over, and then you deep fry them. Mm. And it's sort of like phyllo, only a little bit uh, crumbly at the same time. And then, you, of course, you put syrup and pistachios on it, and it's just sort of like an inside-out baklava. So you won them over with the sweets. I mean, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that always works. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and what else did you, anything else that would be um, of interest? Didn't you make a... a some carrot dish that was was that a sweet or uh, no that was that was a vegetable dish I decided I should have some vegetables it's mm-hmm. basically it's uh, carrots in uh, sweet sour sauce just vinegar and uh, honey and uh, but it's also uh, with a mixture of um, parsley and mint and rue if you can get it uh, rue is kind of like in my garden I would them like a stone but uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, rue is bitter but it has a wonderful sort of a sweet fruit a plum-like aroma. Uh-huh. And then, for the crowning touch, you fry uh, sliced onions really, really brown. And this makes it for a very uh, very uh, splashy sort of dish. Oh, nice contrast, yeah. Um, I was Actually, I was very excited to read that recipe when um, somebody wrote an account of it. And I, because I do have a beautiful rue plant uh, perennial in my garden, and mm. and I'm always looking for a use for that. And now I know. Now I know I'm going to make those sweet and sour carrots. That'll be great. Um, and everything, the the sweet and the sour, and it's all, it all just seems very perfumey. And I have to say that I, um, when I started reading the book, and I and read that the the chapter, not read the the recipes, but you know was glancing through the chapter on the perfumes and the scents and the washing powders and things that um, I knew this was a book for my daughter-in-law who does, she has, runs a business where she makes all her own scents and, and you know, bug sprays and, um, and perfumes and, and uh, tonics. And she loved it. She went crazy for it um, because it's often very difficult to get a translation of, of um, specific uh, older perfume recipes as you give. So uh, she and I both thank you for that. That was that was a real bonus for her. Um, what the um, the other thing I wanted to know about in the cooking were um, how is most how is how are most of the dishes cooked for our readers to tell you? Now did they did they have um, did they put them in stone ovens? Were they mostly, you know, in pots over heat? And how were most of these dishes prepared? Some are cooked in tandoor ovens and some in the uh, pizza-style brick oven because mm-hmm. Syria is the shatter zone between those two styles of ovens. East of Syria, it's all tandoors. Uh, but mostly they cooked over the fire, and they don't describe the utensils very much, but uh, typically utensils are made of soapstone. And uh, that is still being done in Yemen. In Yemen, I have seen these dishes, these bowls carved out of soapstone on raging fires. They stand up quite well to mm. fire, except that you don't want to put cold water in them right. uh, when they're hot, just like a pizza stone. But they cooked in soapstone because it was absolutely neutral and didn't change the flavor of the food at all. They used metal uh, utensils for things like frying eggs and uh, for boiling water and syrups. And a lot of the cooking that they did in the soapstone would be uh, sort of like familiar to us in the sense they might they very often started out by frying onions and then putting in the meat, then putting the other ingredients. 
a, a very typical procedure in, um, uh, well, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Um, is there, like, what... Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you about, and, and that was the... There is... Um, it's, it's just a fascinating book. There are so many different uh, aspects to it. But the... Uh, glossary is a book in itself, <laughs> and that that of course was very important. I found myself turning back to that constantly, um, and the description of weights and measures that because I started to read, you know, just opened the book and started to read a recipe and said, well, I can't even get through this because I have no idea what they're talking about." The weights and measures are all very specific, but yet, tell us about that. Well, they used uh, weights and measures, and some of them were very standard. Um, there were some very small things were measured according to the weight of particular coins, like a dirham, uh, which was the same as the uh, the Greek drachma, and which was the, in English has the form dram, a, a small weight. And um, but for larger weights, uh, they had a thing that was sort of like the Roman pound and then the Roman ounce, but they varied greatly. Uh, you know, uh, it might, they, they vary, like, maybe about uh, one place it would be, a pound would be 80% more, um, only, um, or maybe uh, 40% uh, heavier than in another. And so in the recipes, you basically get the proportions, and um, it, would, it would work out because there, was always, there were always 12 ounces in a, in a pound. Uh, but so in the... In the um, Glossary. I've had to explain that um, you know in different parts of Syria, these things would weigh, weigh different things. Yeah, I mean, depending on what city you go to, right? And whatever, right. whatever measurement they were using. So it made it a little tough, I would imagine, for recipes to travel from one region to another. Well, in some recipes in this book, he says specifically uh, using uh, the pound as uh, as it uh, is used in Aleppo or in Damascus. So when he wants to be specific, he spells out uh, which usage he's talking about. Yeah, interesting. Um, is there what was there one dish or you uh, no, not dish, but um, use of an ingredient that well, I would say surprise you, but wouldn't surprise you because you've been studying the the cooking and um, in this area and and doing work on translations for a long time, but. One that was the most unusual ingredient, perhaps, or use of an ingredient that we would not expect today? Anything? Well, I would think one of the perfume ingredients is palm spave. The uh, palm tree <clears throat> hides its flowers until blooming time because it's, it's pollinated by air rather than by insects. And so these kind of like specialized leaves and, uh, and close all the flowers until the moment when all the palm trees decide to, uh, you know, uh, go partying. <laughs> and uh, those enclosing leaves are aromatic. And according to um, a report I read in, a, in a, a UN report, they smell kind of like vanilla. Hmm. And they are used in some, um, some perfumes for, uh, for the, some of the things that splash yourself with after the, uh, the meal. Wow, hard to find, and you have to wait until they decide that that's the time they're going to open, right? But, but or well, just substitute vanilla. Yeah, well worth the wait, right? Um, and and as far aside from uh, perfume ingredients as um, the actual food ingredients, anything you had um, a difficult time getting? Was you said the internet was helpful, but um, yeah. anything in particular that maybe yeah, we don't there have? Yeah, some anymore? vegetables that are that are hard to find. Mm. Um, they were they were gathered things really, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, hirsonine as a crocus bulbs. You can get a kind of a crocus bulb. Uh, it's used in Greek cooking. They call them volvi. Mm. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> most of the ingredients are, are pretty readily available. I mean, spinach, chard. Yeah. Um, taro was a little hard to find, uh, but the place of taro in Middle Eastern cooking was taken over by the potato. Mm, right. There's, in there's many, some Arabic cooking, dialects yeah. in which the word for potato is actually the old word for taro. Hmm, interesting. Another new world food taking the place of another. Um, it's it's just in reading the recipes, I I my I just gathered that these were all very kind of like familiar foods 
to me in certain ways. I mean, it's obviously not the, a lot of the aromatics, but sprigs of mint and, you know, and, and bunches of, of um, herbs and, and honey and vinegar and, um, uh, you know, frying in the fat. Oh, in the fat. But they did use the, um, the tail fat. That was... Did they not write? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually very tasty. People think of lamb fat as mm-hmm. something that's kind of gross that sticks to the roof of your mouth, but the tail fat is is sort of a cross between lamb and butter. Mm-hmm. It has a very attractive flavor. Yeah. Interesting. I should I should point out the one thing that was very characteristic of this cuisine was um, the Arabs were the first people to explore the higher densities of sugar syrup. And there are at least eight different densities of syrup described in this book. That's yeah, yeah. And and and, it, and these were not used just primarily for sweets, right? I mean, this was they were used in in different uh, syrups and flavorings in the dishes. Um, well, there was one dish that was so popular it was also known in medieval Spain: it's candied chicken. You cover chicken with a syrup that uh, stiffens on it. I think uh, sugar was still kind of new, and uh-huh. people were easily thrilled. So a candy-coated chicken. I think that would go over quite well today. <laughs> it's something we should uh, not discount as showing up on one of the, the menus in today's restaurants, more you know adventurous restaurants. Well, Charles, thank you so much for sharing this. I, I really um, have found this very fascinating, and I have not read it cover to cover. It's, it takes, well, for me, a long time because I'm trying to understand each each recipe, but it really is very insightful into the flavors and, and indeed kind of the, you know, as, as it has been said, a glimpse into the social history of the period into how they would be, you know, the, the perfumes and the eating and, the, and the, the many dishes and, of course, of the aristocracy, you know, true. But I, again, the, the name of the book is Scents and Flavors, a Syrian cookbook, and it's from the Library of Arabic Literature from New York University Press, the author and my guest, Charles Perry. Thank you, Charles, very much. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. If I offered you a bag of nooch or a sprinkle of hippie dust, would you take it? If you're a pizza-loving vegan, you probably would. Today on Fresh Pickings, nutritional yeast and its various street names. What it is and why you should be putting it on your popcorn next time you go to the movies. Today I'll chat with Dave Arnold, co-host of Cooking Issues here on HRN, about what nutritional yeast actually is and what it is not. Then VLGL blogger Elizabeth Taylor is back to give us a recipe that uses nutritional yeast and for a bonus, chickpea flour. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us. So when I think of an every food topping, I'm usually thinking about parm, parmesan cheese, 
Parmesan on pizza, on pasta, on a crunchy Caesar salad, even on my eggs in the morning. Or I might be thinking about ketchup because some people put ketchup on all of those things too. But what if cheese isn't your thing? Or we can all agree that ketchup on salad is pretty gross. Or what if it's just time to change things up a bit? Now, don't get me wrong, Parmesan will never go out of style, and ketchup and fries belong together. But variety is the spice of life. So getting in on nutritional yeast is a great way to add some spice and umami to your life. So variety, that's great and all. And I know what yeast is, but what is nutritional yeast? It doesn't sound very food-like. This is David, our engineer, and that's a great question, David. So nutritional yeast is sort of like vegan cheese. It goes great on popcorn and you can make vegan mac and cheese with it, but it's flaky. The folks over at Bon Appetit magazine called it nature's Cheeto dust, but unlike Cheetos, this is actually good for you. Hmm, That sounds intriguing. Still not sure what it is, though. Okay, if you can't be convinced by my flaky, umami, cheese-like goodness description and that it goes on everything, then I'm going to have to get an expert to weigh in. I'm all about flavor, but not so much about specifics. So I'm going to check in with Dave Arnold of Cooking Issues to find out more. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold of Cooking Issues, and I have a lot to say about nutritional yeast, and that goes way beyond Kat's accurate and tantalizing but pretty vague description. Okay, great. I needed someone to step in here. Thanks, Dave. Can you please explain what this stuff actually is? All right. Despite the strange name, uh, it's definitely uh, food. So nutritional yeast is the deactivated, you know, dead, they've killed it form of uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Now, that's Basically, the same yeast that you would use to make bread, to make uh, beer. So it's, it's definitely common. It's not some weird, like, funky thing. It's like almost all the good things we like to eat or drink it's involved with. Not almost, but, you know, a lot of the good things we like to eat or drink are involved with it. So the way it's produced is, is first you, you culture to grow it in a warm, sweet medium the same way that they would do when they're making beer or as a first start to whiskey. Then after it grows, uh, they kill it basically, and dry it out, uh, and you could use it that way. So is it nutritious? Well, if you believe in nutrition as a form of measuring foodstuffs rather than just deliciousness, then uh, yes. I mean, uh, there's a – has a lot of – I mean, remember, it's a, it's a complete organism, so it's got you know, a lot of protein. So a quarter cup of it, which is quite a bit actually, a quarter cup of yeast, but that's uh, eight grams of protein, three grams of fiber, and five grams of carbohydrates. That's off the back of the – package. I don't know that stuff off the top of my head. It has lots of uh, micronutrients like thiamine, niacin, riboflavin, uh, B6, B12, zinc, folate. You know, so it's, it's also something good for, you know, vegans who can't get a lot of those things out of, because uh, they, they're not getting a animal-based diets or, or, or dairy-based diets. So it's, it's good to get those things that are hard, sometimes hard to get out of straight plant foods. So why does it taste savory and meaty? Uh, well, yeast, and so uh, like, there's a bunch of different kinds of yeast, and yeast is actually one of the things that's used in commercial foods to provide meaty taste. Different, but you know, it's broken down to certain uh, degrees. So the protein in yeast, once it's like autolyzed or broken up, and a lot of yeast after it grows and starts dying will self-autolyze, right? So it can produce a wide variety of flavors, but protein breakdown products, in particular from yeast, can produce meaty aroma, meaty flavors, rather. Taylor, the creator of food blog VLGL.cooking. Today I have a recipe that uses not just one, but two of my favorite Bob's Red Mill products, chickpea flour and, of course, nutritional yeast. I'm so excited to have Elizabeth Taylor back to share another recipe with us. Elizabeth runs the blog VLGL.cooking, which is her collection of vegan low glycemic load culinary creations. In the last episode, Elizabeth explained the VLGL eating philosophy and gave us a killer recipe for grain-free granola. Let's see what she brought today. So, Elizabeth, Bob's Red Mill makes a lot of products that fit into the VLGL philosophy, don't they? They sure do, Kat. In addition to being low glycemic, 
meaning that it won't cause a spike in blood sugar. Chickpea flour is packed with plant-based protein, iron, selenium, and folate. Chickpea flour has a mild earthy flavor and I love to use it for all kinds of savory dishes like this chickpea flour omelet recipe. When you mix chickpea flour with water, spices, and baking soda and heat this mixture in a lightly oiled pan, it transforms into a hearty dish that can be enjoyed at any time of the day. These chickpea flour omelets are denser and more bread-like than an egg omelet, yet richer and sturdier than a crepe. They're great with savory veggies, and my recipe uses kale and juicy grilled tomatoes with chipotle powder. That sounds really delicious. So how are you using the nutritional yeast in this recipe? Nutritional yeast is one of my go-to seasonings. It brings true savory magic to vegan food. In this recipe, I use it to season the chickpea flour omelet for an umami flavor. Thanks so much to Dave Arnold for the yeasty science lesson and to Elizabeth Taylor for sharing her tips for using nutritional yeast. You can find her recipe for the chickpea flour omelet with chipotle grilled tomatoes at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could want to know about nutritional yeast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out our other episodes of Fresh Pickings and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>